You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, also broadcasting from Washington, D.C. How you doing today, Katie? Doing pretty good. Good to be back with you uh, for another round of discussing the latest developments uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, so by popular demand, I think uh, it makes sense for us this week to focus on uh, the summit that took place, the virtual summit, or at least don't call it a summit because neither side really called it a summit, a meeting between the two leaders of the United States and China. Uh, so Joe Biden spoke to Xi Jinping uh, over a uh, virtual teleconference. And uh, I think, you know, there's actually a pretty interesting um, set of issues to kind of run through here. I mean, everybody's expectations were super low. But I think, you know, we can maybe talk through some of the outcomes uh, and, and you know, where things might be going in the U.S.-China relationship more broadly. And then, Katie, I was thinking we could talk a little bit about the China military power report that came out a few weeks earlier, uh, but certainly is still uh, hot on the agenda here in Washington. So how does that sound? That sounds great. I think those are uh, definitely two topics that need to be talked together. Okay, so let's begin with the summit. Uh, so, uh, or, you know, again, not a summit, but talk between Xi and Biden. Uh, what was your take on this? I mean, I, I think I, I think people had pretty low expectations, right? Um, this was the first, quote unquote, face to face meeting between the two leaders, though the, the, I believe there had been a several phone calls previously. Um, I'm curious what you make of the uh, careful language choices. You know, this is competition. This isn't conflict. What do, what do you what do you what's your takeaway on that? Well, so I think, you know, the Biden administration, at least, has been pretty hesitant to accept the narrative uh, of a second Cold War, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is really kind of in vogue uh, in Washington. You'll see it uh, sort of dropped casually by by journalists, commentators, analysts. Uh, and the administration sort of recognizes that there are pitfalls to sort of acknowledging this uh, narrative because China, of course, for years uh, has been complaining about a Cold War mentality and attempts by the United States to contain it. But, I mean, you know, the Biden administration is very different from the Obama administration in its acknowledgement of the competition between the two countries that the Trump administration first made explicit in 2017. So they haven't fundamentally mm -hmm. rewritten the book there. Um, but I thought a lot of the sort of ambiance going into this summit uh, was really, uh, you know, an attempt by both sides to show that they are potentially trying to compartmentalize the, the sources of conflict and competition within the relationship while continuing to cooperate on a few ish, uh, other issues. And here I would point to sort of the surprise um, Glasgow uh, statement uh, by the U.S. and China on climate change cooperation that I don't think many people saw coming. And that was interesting to have that right before uh, this summit. Uh, and another thing I would maybe point out there is that, you know, there were rumors that the U.S. was supposed to release its Indo-Pacific strategy report, which I'm sure is going to end up containing a lot of language on containing China and so forth. That didn't come out just yet. Uh, so it's been interesting to see, uh, you know, both sides sort of make an effort to to shield this meeting from the broader dynamics and then use the meeting as a format to sort of demonstrate a little bit of goodwill, right? I mean, she calling Biden his old mm -hmm. friend and things like that. I mean, it's really about the pageantry to maybe demonstrate that the two leaders have a good relationship. Um, so, um, I mean, you know, do you think that's that's a fair assessment here? Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, I think you saw that in, like you said, the the language that was used, you know, she calling Biden a friend, them sort of calling up their past history together to sort of illustrate that there's a personal relationship. And yeah, we might have some competition and some tension in certain areas. Um, the the climate change agreement and statement uh, makes makes clear that there are still efforts to have cooperation where possible. Um, and then, you know, we would prefer to have competition as opposed to sliding into conflict. And, and I think 
there's definitely the tone of the outcome of the meeting while maybe not reaching any grand conclusion. I don't know that anybody really could at this point. And so I think it's, it's definitely, um, I think they got out of it what they wanted to get out of it. Um, especially given the, the China military power report earlier in the month, kind of heightening the, the heat in Washington when it comes to the Chinese military threat and what the United States military is thinking about, about China as this pacing challenge, as they say. And so I think the diplomatic talk kind of weighed that out a little bit back right. into balance. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, on the on the note of the military and, and the potential for U.S.-China conflict, uh, I think it was pretty clear that at least the U.S. side was going into this meeting with one primary objectives, uh, which I think Biden laid out when he said, you know, it seems clear to me that we need to establish some common sense guardrails. Uh, and I think I think that's a very important idea that I don't think we've seen the last stuff uh, with the summit meeting. Right. Um, it also shows, I mean, how far things have come since that shouting match in Alaska at the, at, uh, in the early days of the Biden administration between um, Jake Sullivan and, and Tony Blinken, secretary of state and uh, and Young Yichun and Wang Yi, on the other hand. Uh, and so, you know, these common sense guardrails, I think, have manifested in a few things. Um, the the readouts from both sides didn't really give us a ton of insight into what might be happening. Uh, but there was a report earlier today uh, in Bloomberg, I believe, that talked about the U.S. and China seeking to maybe elevate military to military talks. Definitely a positive development. Um, and then on the nuclear side, there's been some talk about strategic stability talks, uh, building off of comments that Jake Sullivan made at Brookings after the summit. Um, I think... I, you know, the interpretation of those comments, I think, probably hasn't been parsed out fully by a lot of people talking about this, because I think what Jake Sullivan did say was a little mealy-mouthed in terms of suggesting that the the United States proposed this as an idea to China, and I don't fully think that she actually reciprocated or accepted the idea. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really uncertain to me if, uh, you know, uh, strategic stability talks on nuclear issues are actually going to go forward. Um, and then on the other side, I mean, you know, climate change, uh, North Korea, um, nonproliferation, I mean, you know, some of these issues that have traditionally been bright spots for U.S.-China cooperation, I think both sides are still seizing on. Um, mm -hmm. but, but Katie, I wanted to sort of ask you something. So, you know, um, the, the readout that came out from the Chinese side uh, was, was, was pretty fascinating because um, it, the language used by China very much portrayed the United States and China as, as, as two equals, as two poles in, uh, in, in the global um, system. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, you know, what you make of that. I mean, is this, is this really, I mean, you know, China really sitting down at the table with the United States as an equal? Are we sort of seeing um, she really pick up on a theme that was sort of prominent in sort of 2015-2016 in the, in the new era of great power relations uh, period in U.S.-China ties? But um, but I don't know if you um, if you uh, have anything to to say about that because I thought that was yeah. pretty interesting. I mean, I I do think that's interesting. It's I, I guess I see it as kind of the culmination of um, after China's rise, China has risen, right? And and I think uh, Beijing is certainly at, at the position in Xi, especially given sort of the outcomes of the sixth plenum um, that we saw recently. He's pretty secure in his position in China, and I they think is seeking to no longer have you know, have China be rising, but to have risen to to an equal status with other world powers. And and I think that certainly the United States is the the benchmark for that. And whether whether the US side views China as an equal, I think is I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but they certainly want to be treated in in that fashion and and demand that kind that level of respect. Mm -hmm. Um and what 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 did you make of that? Do you do you think that uh, you know, 
is was there any motivation behind that kind of language or was that just you know china no longer um dithering about what its status in the world is yeah no i i think i think uh yeah i think what you just said is right i think uh, she has really been both internally uh, within china what he's saying about china's role in the world and externally uh, i think he's clearer than ever uh, that china is now um, largely risen, right? I think a lot of uh, Xi sort of shedding that old uh, Tung Xiaoping notion of hiding and biting um, mm-hmm. is is very much playing out in in Chinese foreign policy and behavior on the on the world stage more generally. Um, you know, I mean, just as a final note before we uh, talk about uh, the China Military Power Report, I think I mean also coming out of the summit, I think one of the potentially good things is that both sides are not complacent or entirely satisfied with the state of the relationship. Mm. And that might seem obvious because the relationship is bad. And usually when the relationship is bad, um, sides will have incentives to improve things, although that wasn't true necessarily within uh, the um, in the Trump era. Uh, But I think a lot of what we saw is potentially going to lead lead to a little bit more positive momentum uh, in in 2022. Um, I think this compartmentalization, you know, I mean, so the two important ideas that I think I would leave listeners with here on the summit is that. You have compartmentalization on one hand and and this push to establish guardrails to avoid uh, stumbling into a conflict inadvertently or, or accidentally. And I think both of those are are good sort of beginnings uh, for mm-hmm. a, a broader process of maybe um, recalibrating or, or, or finding a new normal for the U.S.-China relationship in this era of, as the Biden administration calls it, uh, strategic competition. So I think, uh, you know, going into the new year, uh, I think uh, that'll be something that I'll be looking for uh, quite closely. Yeah, and I would just I would just add to that that overarching that is the idea that that this is a, a relationship that is um, continually being worked on. So there's you know maybe it's it's a little bit uh, um, I don't know Pollyannish of me to say, but there's still conversation happening. And as as you said, they're happening in those um, compartmentalized areas. Maybe that's the best place to look for progress as opposed to this overarching. You know, the United States and China are not going to wake up tomorrow and be as close as, you know, the United States and the UK. It's just not it, like that's not that's not a reasonable expectation. But the reasonable expectation can be there continues to be talks in progress um, in that in that way. And maybe that's that's worth um, keeping an eye on. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's maybe turn back to earlier this month when the China military power report came out. Um, I know that you have read it front to back, I'm sure. Um, what you know, what jumped out at you? Uh, about this report what was what was sort of what are the highlights sure so there's uh, a lot of highlights uh so you know just a little bit on the background of this report this is a congressionally mandated report that the pentagon releases every year uh it's incredibly valuable for those of us that that track the chinese military uh, because it offers uh open source citable assessments um based on u.s intelligence collection on chinese capabilities so it's so it's actually a really valuable document a lot of china watchers in town are always very excited uh, and, and it's not normal that it comes out in November. <laughs> it used to come mm-hmm. out in August. And, uh, you know, I think some of the reasons it was delayed this year, um, as, as some of our listeners may be aware, there's been a lot of developments on the nuclear front in China that have uh, required uh, certainly a lot of analysis. And so I suspect uh, some of the delay was due to the Pentagon trying to figure out, um, first of all, what was happening and, and how this could be presented uh, to, um, you know, in the open source in a way that didn't necessarily compromise U.S. sources or methods, but still sort of cast a, um, a, a spotlight on these developments in China. So, you know, Katie, I mean, this might be sort of also my bias is just uh, given the issues that I work on uh, in my day job. But, you know, the, the nuclear component of uh, this particular 2021 China military power report 
um, really jumps out. Uh, but I don't want to sort of overlook some of the observations on the conventional foresight. So why don't we begin with the conventional and maybe talk about the nuclear a little bit later. Um, so starting with the conventional stuff, I mean, the big one is, I would say, the growth uh, in the People's Liberation Army Navy. Uh, this is certainly a familiar topic to many who read The Diplomat. You know, we've been covering the PLA Navy's uh, growth and, and, and shifting force structure uh, for years. Um, but, you know, the overall force size is now at 355 ships and submarines, um, and that's an increase of five from the 2020 report. Uh, and 145 of those are major surface combatant vessels. Uh, and so that's uh, quite concerning from the perspective of the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. given that the United States is trying to project power uh, with a Navy that um, in, in, in cumulative comprises fewer ships. Although, you know, we can we can talk about the differences between uh, blue water experience uh, and, and uh, expeditionary uh, expeditionary experience where the U.S. Navy certainly um, has has a significant advantage uh, and an armament. Uh, and then, you know, China's making greater advances in uh, anti-submarine warfare techniques, which are, uh, I think, you know, something that China's been focusing on probably for the last five years. They've understood and recognized that they're not necessarily where they want to be with uh, ASW capabilities. So that's been a, a, a big focus. Um, also on the conventional side, uh, you know, the conventional ballistic missile inventory in China continues to grow. That's been a huge source of concern in the context of Taiwan Strait contingencies and things like that. Um, you know, those are some of the big highlights. And then um, the other stuff that I think is interesting, but we don't have to get too much into this because it, 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 it is perhaps a little dry, but, you know, investments in intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, space-based reconnaissance capabilities, uh, all of this is continuing um, in, in China. And then, uh, but yeah, the big stuff is really on the nuclear front. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what did you make of the estimation of, of what is it, a, a thousand nuclear warheads is the, the Chinese plan or, or goal? I'm curious where that, where that number comes from and, and how that relates to um, past uh, sort of forecasts or estimates. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of headlines pulled that thousand number, uh, which I actually don't think is the one we should be focusing on too much. I mean, sure, it's it's four digits, which is, you know, an order of magnitude increase in uh, the size of China's nuclear arsenal as it's ever uh, as it's ever been in the entirety of China's history, uh, going back to their first nuclear test in uh, 1964. But the language in the report is pretty specific, right? So, uh, so the U.S. government is pretty careful, especially when the intel community is involved in reviewing these documents in offering sort of estimates of certainty or, mm -hmm. or the basis for believing something, right? So they say up to, quote, up to 700 warheads by 2027. And then they add China likely intends, quote, likely intends to attain 1,000 mm -hmm. by 2030. So likely intends is not a comment on capabilities. It's a, it's a comment on intentions. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty still in the open source on China's fissile material, right? You can't build nuclear warheads unless you have the plutonium and uranium necessary, um, and based on what we know right now, a thousand is probably attainable for China, assuming some developments in the coming years. But 700 certainly seems to um, gel with what we know right now about existing mm -hmm. stocks in China. Uh, but in uh, but in either case, I mean, both would be incredibly significant. DOD's older estimate was, uh, you know, China's warheads were in the low 200s. Um, and so going up to 700 is is a more than threefold increase. And that's uh, certainly incredibly significant. So um, my my next kind of question when thinking about this is, you know, this report is an annual report 
put together by U.S. military at at the request of, of Congress. But who else is reading this report? You know, I'm I'm kind of interested in your take on uh, how valuable this is for other Asian powers who are just as curious about China's capabilities. And in what way do you think this this sort of perspective frames the larger conversation about about China's military might in in its own neighborhood? Yeah, no, that's a terrific question. I mean, I think uh, certainly um, everybody's reading this report, right? I mean, um, foreign governments do their own intelligence collection and analysis, but certainly find it useful to compare to whatever the U.S. is able to put out in the open source. Um, the other thing is that you know China is generally quite non-transparent about mm-hmm. its military activities, um, and so uh, a, a a resource like this is also incredibly valuable for uh, researchers working in the field and. And I think that, you know, that's also particularly true for um, researchers within China working on China's military, because oftentimes they find themselves relying on open source work that appears uh, in the West to uh, better understand their own country's defense trajectory. So I think that's definitely, uh, you know, a a valuable component of this. Um, If I can, Katie, I mean, just briefly going back to the nuclear thing. I mean, one of the things I did want to highlight also is that, you know, so what's interesting to me is that when you know Russia and North Korea have had some pretty important you know high level changes in how they think about their nuclear forces Russia in in March 2018 when Putin sort of got up in front of the Russian Federal Assembly and explained why Russia was building a new range of sort of exotic nuclear delivery systems and similarly in North Korea Kim Jong Un earlier this year outlined this sort of long wish list for military modernization and why he felt that these capabilities were necessary but then when we look at China there's no narrative. Uh, you know, there's no high-level narrative from Xi Jinping, uh, at least for outside consumption or even public consumption in China, that offers some insight into why, for instance, China is building um, fields of silos uh, in, in the desert of Xinjiang, a development, by the way, that was confirmed by DOD in this report, but had first been reported by open source researchers. So I think this is a big problem. And I think this really underscores, uh, you know, just going back to the summit for a second, why I think the Biden administration is absolutely right to try to seek these kinds of talk with um, these kinds of talks with China, uh, because you know, I mean, we can all speculate about the reasons, right? I have some pretty good ideas about why China is doing this, but until we have sort of an authoritative source of insight into the decision making mm-hmm. here, uh, it, it becomes, I think, first of all, really easy for um, hawks in the United States to uh, sort of you know manipulate these developments uh, to whatever ends they might see fit. You know, arguing for the United States, for instance, to increase the size of our own nuclear arsenal. Uh, but I think this is a really important factor that. DOD, even in this report, doesn't have a pretty compelling, um, you know, doesn't have a narrative for why China's doing this. They're, you know, well, here's what China's doing. We don't really know why it's happening. Yeah. And and I, I think that's really important because if, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't frame your own decisions, um, others will insert a narrative for you. Um, and I think China's kind of fallen into a little bit of, of that trap if, the, if they don't iterate their own intentions. Now, of course, you know, when, when, North Korea iterates its its intentions and its sort of narrative about its nuclear uh, capabilities or ambitions, and the same is true of Russia. We don't have to necessarily take that at face value, but it provides a framework. And if if you don't provide any kind of framework to understand the decisions that are being made, as you said, you know, hawks in the United States will take one interpretation; others might take a different interpretation, and and you're kind of not commenting on your own own decision making. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right that the sort of diplomatic angle with the Biden administration towards China uh, is is certainly to seek some of that clarity. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the last thing I would add on the China military power report uh, was, so there was an interesting sort of section uh, looking at the Sino-Indian border. Uh, and so, you know, DOD will sometimes do this and cast light on particularly notable recent developments. Uh, so I believe it was maybe uh, 2016 or 2015 when they had a sort of cutaway on China building artificial islands in the South China Sea. Um, I thought I thought it was unsurprising to see the uh, the Sino-Indian border mentioned, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. there were fatalities there last year. 20 Indian troops and an unknown number of Chinese soldiers were killed in violence in June 2020. Um, but those assessments were actually picked up pretty significantly in India. The Indian press really uh, talked about this and sort of, you know, I mean, interpreted the Pentagon report as sort of a sign that the United States is paying more attention than ever to what's happening in in the Himalayas. And I don't know if I'd go that far, but, you know, it was certainly interesting to see the U.S. assessments of what China is doing, which is very much entrenching a position there. Um, and then more broadly, I mean, you know, this wasn't in the report, uh, but, you know, my sense of some of what's at work here is, you know, China's been concerned for a long time about India's turn to the maritime domain. Uh, India's becoming increasingly more active um, east of the Malacca Strait and the South China Sea, the Western Pacific, the East China Sea, um, deepening its ties with Australia, Japan, uh, Southeast Asian states where Indian Navy vessels have been doing more and more port calls. Um, And so when we look at budgets in India, though, we see the Indian Navy is sort of last behind the uh, Army and the Air Force when it comes to the share of the budget, particularly the Army. You know, India has fundamentally always been a land-oriented power. And so now by China putting more and more pressure on the northern border, um, you know, it's probably less likely that India will be able to divert those mm-hmm. resources that many Americans and Japanese and Australians have been sort of interested in seeing New Delhi do to become a more capable maritime player, uh, particularly east of Malacca. I think India will remain forward engaged uh, in the Indian Ocean just because that's, you know, India considers that its backyard. But, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see, um, you know, that sort of play out. Uh, so I'd be sort of curious to see if next year the Pentagon similarly comments on on these uh, developments. It, it hasn't really been a huge focus of previous reports. So that, did, you know, that did jump out to me. I think that's a that's a really astute observation. Um, you know, it, it it makes it harder, I imagine, domestically for India to make the argument that we should invest more in our navy if the problems that people see on on the news happen to be all all land based. Um, but yeah, I think that's definitely something worth watching. Uh, you know, the only thing to add on that is uh, also the um, uh, the uh, change security environment in Afghanistan also I think contributes to that perception. Mm-hmm. India, right. So you have Pakistan, Afghanistan, China. It's it's not a very uh, you know, it's not a very positive uh, outlook if you're if you're based in New Delhi and you're looking north. So uh, that's that's certainly a, a factor here. Um, uh, anyways, Katie, uh, anything anything else to uh, add today? I th- I think that's um you know unless we unless we get further into the weeds of nuclear policy with you, which I'm sure you could talk about for hours. Uh, I think we've we've given our listeners a good overview of the of the current state of U.S. China relations. Fantastic. Well. Uh... Thanks, Katie, for joining me today. It's always, always fun to do this. And I'm looking forward, you know, it's the second episode we've done together as co-hosts and I'm looking forward to many more of these. So uh, thanks. Thank you. For listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast and you'd like to keep up with future episodes, make sure you subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you really get your shows, we're there. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back soon with more.